Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the October Investment Edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and in the investment universe right now, bringing it to you uh, so that hopefully you can stay informed and act uh, accordingly on the information we provide. Bob, what's been going on? So yeah, the main thing is we've seen Treasury yields climb up uh, about 1% over the last last couple months, last two months. Um, which is a, a big move um, in the treasury market. And if you look at um, this year, we started um, and rates actually declined in March when we had the banking crisis. And then they bounced back. And by the end of Q2, we were right where we started. So the first half of 2023 was a non-event for yields. And then um, they've, they've really taken a run up. Um, 10-year treasury around 475 right now, almost at 5% yesterday. Um, today's October. 4th. And that's like a 15 or 16 year high, right? This is what yeah. I'm reading. Okay. Yep. And um, it's we're seeing the uh, increase, as I meant, referenced the 10 year treasury and the intermediate to long end of the curve is rising. So the yield curve starting to flatten. So a normal yield curve is upward sloping. So the longer maturity, the higher the yield you get. Um, in the last um, year or two, we've had what's typically called an inverted yield, yield curve, where as you go further out longer term, you have a lower yield, which is unusual. You don't normally don't see that. Um, you see it in um, periods where the Fed is, is hiking interest rates, which is the environment we've been in. And now it's starting to flatten. It's still inverted a little bit um, with like um, short term yields around five and a half, um, but then longer, like 475 or so. Um, but it's it's flattening as and what you can read into that a little bit is the market um, believing that higher rates will be here for longer. And also that the Fed will cut rates on the short end, or is that not part of the yield curve flattening? No, yeah, that's not really part of it because the short end's um, been pretty much where the, the Fed funds rate is. So okay. that, that they control the, the front end and... Um, you know, in, in March of uh, 2023, the 10-year treasury was like in the, in the low threes because the market said, oh, you know, banks are going to fail and we're going to, they're going to cut rates. And that didn't happen. So so both instances or both of the things where you're talking about, it's essentially the same thing. The 10-year yield is increasing, which is just noteworthy and something we're going to talk about for probably the bulk of this podcast. But it then is also causing the yield curve to to flatten. Yeah. Yeah. And so then like the question is like, what's driving that? And um, what we what you typically see in markets is fundamentals drive change in price, or at least what you, what like the textbooks would teach you to think fundamentals drive change in price. So for treasuries, for example, um, a key input would be inflation and what you think inflation will be over the next 10 years should drive um, the price of treasuries. Um, and and inflation concerns have ticked up a little bit. We've talked about oil, I think, on the last couple of podcasts, and oil's in the mid-80s or so. Um, 
you know, which which is elevated. So that that is a concern. Um, and we we have seen inflation be stubborn in the, the three to four range, not getting down to the two percent area that the Fed wants. But also what's um, really coming out in um, kind of rhetoric from investment professionals when you say like what's going on in markets is what they call market technicals. So technicals in the bond market and what they mean by that is um, issuance and supply and demand. So in Q3, there was about a trillion dollars of treasuries issued by the treasury. Um, and that's like rolling treasuries that matured, they issue new ones and funding the deficit. And that's a, a high amount of volume, much higher than normal. So when the treasury is kind of flooding the market with new treasuries, um, it's it's typical economic supply and demand, and they need buyers to to absorb that trillion dollars. So, you know, at what price? And the market um, called for higher prices, so yields went up. And that is the what of the 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 yield story. Taking it maybe a step back, why is that what you wanted to start the podcast with? Why why is this kind of explosion in the ten year Treasury yield the most noteworthy thing going on, and what what's been the impact to the markets? Yeah, so looking at one month returns, the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is down three and a half percent over the last month, wow. and you know that that's including the yield. So just bonds are typically pretty boring and the Bloomberg US aggregate bond index is mostly treasuries and government agencies. It's like, it's a high quality bond index. Um, so just relative to the assets that it owns, it's a big move. So as um, we're you know, doing monthly podcasts, you, know, you don't see a 3% move, negative move in um, the, the US ag um, that frequently. So um, that's definitely, catching our attention here. And I think that is what's driving a lot of things like the sell-off in the stock market as well. And why would it be driving the sell-off in the stock market, Bob? So it, it gets a little bit to like what I said with technicals and the treasury issues a, a trillion dollars. Where's that trillion dollars of, of buyers come from? And you can un unravel it a little more and there's actually been net selling of treasuries from foreigners, um, namely China uh, specifically and uh, Japan, I believe as well. So um, domestically, you know, people need to come up with a trillion dollars or more to buy treasuries. So what are they doing? Some people are selling stocks to buy treasuries. So that puts downward pressure on prices. That that's one way it can impact stocks. And then a second is just simply if you're out there and you're gonna, I'm gonna go buy some stocks today. You know, what what price do I want to put a bid on? You know, you name the company, and you want to do some financial modeling and, and think about it. Um, when you see risk-free rates at in the five percent range, um, you should pay a lower price. You should be willing to pay a lower price for uh, stocks. For stocks, yeah. yeah. Get, getting to something that we touched on a podcast or two ago, which I initially poo-pooed a little bit, that you know higher rates, technically and textbook-wise, should threaten stock prices. But I had shared that you know I, I think a lot of asset allocation approaches are. Um, leaning people away from making those, you know, tactical shifts as often as you would think. But with rates continuing their climb, I mean, at some point, yeah, if you can get five in treasuries and maybe more in 
high quality bonds that are not treasuries or government backed, but still, you know, high quality corporates or or whatever, you're going to maybe be taking less incremental risk in the stock market. Yeah, I mean, there, there was an acronym um, that was thrown around a couple of years ago called TINA. And it was, there is no alternative to stocks. So y- y- your financial plan needs 7%. You know, you need stocks in your portfolio. That's the only way to get there because bonds are, are you know, yielding one or two. Okay. Um, the the TINA days are, are behind us. There is an alternative now. And there the is an alternative. Is- and you can get 5% for doing nothing and taking no risk. And more if you're willing to take a, a little bit of risk and still be credit quality. Yeah, investment grade corporate bonds, you can get 6%. So and like mortgage-backed securities, Fannie backed by the government that we heard, uh, you know, Kenneth Dublin talk, but you can get 6% there. So, so that that's all good for the bond market, right? And bond investors going forward. And you've laid out a case why it's rational to be allocating more to fixed income right now. Uh, so long as you know you're you're avoiding uh, certain risks, which I, I know you want to get into in, in a little bit, but the bond market dropped by a big amount last month, and you just talked about that. So why, what, why is it okay to 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 dip your toes into the bond market or to continue to own the stuff that you own if it if it can go down three percent in a month? Yeah, I mean it is a case of you know what's attractive has become more attractive. Um, and we, we don't, you know, it gets into market timing. Like we don't know that we're at a bottom, like is 475 going to be the highest we're going to see the 10 year treasury go? Will we see it go to five or six or seven? Like th- that's all possible. Um, so there is risk there. Um, I think it does get to being smart about the duration, um, kind of the maturity that you take. So uh, I've been referencing the 10 year treasury. It's, it's, uh, I think the most commonly referenced, um, maturity treasury that people look at our portfolios are closer to about five years on average so we're shorter than that yep and as you're shorter you have less interest rate sensitivity so um you know when rates go up you don't go down as much and you're more you know collecting the yield and less um you know having a part of your total return come from price movement due to changes in interest rates so what has it done to the stock market we've talked about the bond market september was I think ugly. Uh, people tend to think of September as a bad month for stocks. I don't know if the data backs that up as as much as you hear about it, but there is something there. So stocks didn't do well in September. I'm I'm guessing. How much of that do you think is seasonality? How much of that do you think is normal pullbacks? How much of that do you think is this higher yield story we've been talking about? Yeah. So I'll just run through the numbers quickly. Um, this is one month returns. Russell three thousand. Minus 6.58 MSCA World XUSA. So this is global XUS um, developed minus 605 and emerging markets, MSCI emerging markets minus 4.53. So what you know has had done the best year to date, the US market pulled back the most, what had lagged, pulled EM um, pulled back the least. Uh, so but the, they've all um, you know seen a decline over the last month. The seasonality, trying to play the calendar, I I don't think there's a, um, enough there to you know, point to that, although it, it is um, convenient for the folks that like to say, you know, yeah. September's the worst month to be invested that it did go down. But um, I mean, I think stocks went down mainly due to um, higher interest rates, as we talked about. Did interest rates increase because we flipped the calendar from August to September? I just probably not to find the connection in that. 
Yeah. That's like Mike Santoli when he was on, he was talking about the inverted yield curve and its ability to predict recessions. And he said, you know, I'm not going to give the inverted yield curve credit for COVID, right? Um, which right. was the last recession that that we had. So yeah, I, I understand. Now, if you take a step back, this is a monthly podcast, but investing is a long-term exercise, which we do like to remind people of frequently. Year to date, the numbers are different, right? Stocks are still doing well. Uh, yeah. Bonds, are are they in negative territory for the calendar year or are they more flat? Yeah, so year to date, um, US stocks, Russell 3000 up 10.5%, MSCI World XUS up 36 Emerging markets about flat, up 37 basis points, and bonds are now negative, um, negative 2.67 uh, total return for the Bloomberg US aggregate. Yeah, so that's what's happened. What do you not think is going to happen? I know better than to ask you that, but what do you think investors should be doing with their cash, stock, and bond allocations, just given what I think you you would describe as a very major move in the bond market and I would describe as a minor move in the stock market, right? For stocks to peel back single digits uh, is something that happens multiple times a year. And I think the average downturn intra-year is over 14%. So I don't think it's been very noteworthy yet on the stock side, but definitely on, on the bond side, how should investors be thinking about cash, stocks, and bonds, given what we're just processing together right now? Yeah, so stocks, on that, it is more stay the course. Um, we've had a little volatility, but overall, uh, you know, you wrap up the, the total global market and it's up about 8% year to date. So um, we, we do think diversification within stocks now is, is um, you know, about as important as it ever has been with the concentration and return that's come from what are now being called the Magnificent Seven. Oh, uh, I didn't hear that one. Okay. The big tech stocks basically <laughs> yeah. um, that have gotten pretty expensive. Um, so just make sure you're diversified um, across sector, across region, across style um, within stocks. And then within bonds, um, we hit on this earlier a little bit, but pay attention to the credit quality uh, in, in fixed income and also the maturity. And um, you know, best practice, what like the institutions do, what pension plans do is um, match the maturity of the fixed income to liabilities. So if you have long-term liabilities, you can buy long-term bonds to match them. And that's your hold period. Um, if it's shorter term, then you should be buying shorter term bonds. And that's how like Silicon Valley Bank got into trouble where they had deposits that could be pulled out any day and they bought long-term bonds with their reserves. So um, just having the right maturity profile in your fixed income is important, but the yields are attractive. And if you hold them to maturity, you'll, you'll get pretty good returns these days in bonds. What is what's been going on in the bond market tell you, if anything, about the economy, the soft landing, the recession watch, stuff that we've been chatting about, I think, on a monthly basis fairly consistently? Yeah, so typically you see a like an upward sloping yield curve in a healthy economy. So one take could be that we're seeing long rates go up. So that means um, the bond market is more in the soft landing camp, like applause, things are good. Um, but that that's debatable. You know, the market doesn't send a memo every day on why it does what it does. Um, 
and I, I do think it's more a case of the technicals and the reaction to the issuance from the treasury. We had the Fitch downgrade recently too. So I think it is more the market just saying, you know, treasury, you've got a lot of debt um, on the balance sheet. You're issuing a lot of debt and we need a higher yield to own this. And that's the message that, that I think the market's telling us. Less okay, so less so uh, new information to process about re recession. Well, less Powell, you're doing a great job. Um, recession <laughs> avoided. That maybe that that's in the memo too, yeah, a fictitious memo. But um, you I, you I, are focused on the technical story, which I which I definitely understand, and, and that's what I what I've been hearing. Um, I was at uh, Fiducian Advisors annual conference uh, last week, and Rick Reader presented. Rick is. Um, the head of the asset allocation committee and head of fixed income at BlackRock. Under him, there's over $2 trillion in fixed income assets. So I think he's probably responsible for the most uh, fixed income dollars on the planet <laughs> from an asset manager. Um, and he, he was talking about the technicals like this. And and I've, I don't think I've ever heard him say, I don't know where it's going, but he, he really was not making any calls on this market. He was um, saying us the technicals and it was overwhelming with how much money is coming into the market and that's what's pushing yields up. And he had uh, charts that looked like a, go a golf shot and he was like, could be a hook, could go right, slice, could go left, could go straight. I don't know where rates are going. Um, and that was his take, which I thought was interesting. He can speak for himself, Bob. I know exactly where my golf shot is going every time <laughs> I, I'm about to tee it up. Uh, so that is not... Um... So much about the future direction of of rates and 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 recession, but you did have something you shared with me as we were getting ready to record about the velocity of rate moves in in either direction and where we could be going. And this idea of staying higher for longer may be too simplified based on what you've seen in prior environments like this and prior recessions. Yeah, so typically, if you, you look back over market cycles, the, the playbook is um, the economy gets hot, inflation picks up, the Fed recognizes it, they gradually raise rates, like 25 basis points a meeting, and it, it looks like a staircase where it goes up, and then they you know go six weeks, goes up again, and, and it takes them maybe 18 months or so to raise rates. And you know the saying is they raise rates until something breaks, and then they realize that a lot of... Um, economic data has a lag to it. So when it breaks, then the, they don't get ahead of it. Um, and the saying is that I think they raise rates um, like a, an escalator and cut rates like an elevator. Mm. So you have the staircase up and then they you know, cut them by one, two, three 3% quickly. And you don't see too often that they raise rates to say a level of five and a half percent and hold for three years. Okay. That just historically doesn't happen. It's the, the gentle increases and then whoops, like recession hit, got to cut it big time. And, and you see the big, you know, the elevator down in rates. So you don't see plateaus at five um, plus levels for an extended period of time historically. Is that another way, Bob, of saying it, they overdo it in both directions? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, look, well, it, they, keep, it's, they keep money, monetary policy too loose, things overheat. They keep it, they tighten it up way too much, things break, and now they need to go in the other direction. Yeah. And so if that's the case, we won't stay at these rates for the higher for longer. We will eventually tip into the Fed needing to cut rates to reverse 
the course that they've set us on. Yeah, and, and that's the call for a recession that we were hearing, yep. uh, you know, loud and clear from everyone earlier this year, because that's that's what typically happens. Um, but here we are, and we haven't seen it yet. No, we have not, uh, thankfully. So you and I have both been traveling more the last few months to industry conferences and events. You referenced the fiduciary event that you uh, attended where Rick Reeder was speaking. I saw him six months ago at, at a different event. But what else have you seen and heard as you've talked to either other professional investors, uh, kindred spirits who have similar roles to you, or some of these uh, investors uh, presenting at these events? Yeah, it was at um, DFA's CIO Forum and then Advanced Conference in Charlotte. Uh, Best Dimensional Fund Advisors. Yep, about two weeks ago. And uh, David Booth, who's the founder of DFA, um, spoke, and he's been in a chairman's role for the last few years where he, he'll, um, he, he's really focused on client communication. So that's what he's doing as a chairman. And he's worked with their chief marketing officer to try and communicate investments very succinctly so that the end client understands it. Um, so he came up with principles for investing that, that I thought were interesting, um, maybe something we should share with our clients in, in some form, at least some of the points um, certainly resonated with me. So I'll, I'll just, there's six of them, I'll just read them off quickly. Um, uncertainty creates opportunity, power of compounding, planning over prediction, control what you can control, value of flexibility, and tune out the noise. So no jargon there, um, you know, Pretty simple, and, and the, there's some depth behind them too. We could go over any of them if you want to in more detail. What What are the one or two that you like the most that you think our listeners would benefit from? Yeah, the the, the first one is I think the strongest. Uncertainty creates opportunity because right. um, when you think about it, if there was certainty, like if if you want to take it to the stock market level, like an individual company, even if you knew exactly what the earnings were going to be, um, the return would be a bond. Basically, it'd be the, like the risk free rate. Um, as you add more uncertainty, more risk, then the, the discount rate increases, the expected return increases. So um, frequently we, we, you know, we meet with clients and they say, I'm worried about you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be, politics and debt ceiling and uh, you know, recession coming. That, that's uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, the market should price that in and price it in by meaning a higher expected return. When everything is certain and there's no risk, that's when returns should be lower. That's when you should be less excited. So you think about times historically when you're most worried about investing, like March of 2020, when COVID was just getting going and the economy was shutting down and you know people are talking about the next Great Depression, awesome time to invest. Uh, you go back to the financial crisis, same thing when like banks were closing and uh, great time to invest. So the more you have to worry, the better the investment um, environment. So just thought that was something powerful. Uncertainty creates opportunity. Right. No, that was uh, that was great. And uh, you said that th there were six total. Maybe we'll share them in the show notes for the podcast so people can get a glimpse of them. Anything else that you're thinking about, Bob, as it comes relates to markets and investing? And we focused a lot on yields and how that impacted things. But is there anything else that you're finding either noteworthy or you're looking to dig into more over the next little bit? I mean, the, the story is really around bonds. Um, what we're looking into more, uh, and it does all kind of relate, is real assets and real estate. 
And um, we look at those as, as kind of bond substitutes, like a couple of years ago when bond yields were so low, the case was very strong for those assets. And now, um, now the bond yields are higher. In many cases, the expected return on those assets have not increased proportionate to the increase we've seen in bonds. So if you think about it, um, and the, like if we have listeners maybe who might have a, a rental apartment, whether it's like a vacation home or an apartment or something, um, if if you own it and you're getting a 5% yield on the asset, so you take your rental income after cost and you're making 5% on the value, when treasury yields are 2 or 3%, that's good. When treasury yields are 5%, you, you know, you're, you're being a landlord for, you're working for free. Um, mm-hmm. Now there's the appreciation potential, but there's additional costs. So it's taken a look at other assets that really the, the higher yields and bonds are by default, you know, the, the bar has been risen. So um, th- that's just something that we're doing. And then also looking at private markets, um, th- there's a bit of a runway to make new investments in private equity where you meet with managers, do the due diligence, make the capital commitments. It takes a while. So we're looking at t- really 2024 private commitments, um, but starting to talk to managers that are coming to market and looking at, at different products there. Okay, great. You and I, I think both either read or you're in the midst of reading the new Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson. I finished it. Are you, are you done? Yeah, I finished it too. What, what did you think? I enjoyed reading it. Um, he's an interesting and complex person. Um, I mean, his life has been pretty highly publicized. He's pretty much an open book. So I also read Steve Jobs by Isaacson, and I think I learned more in that as far as like just deeper insight, like, you know, a lot of things I didn't know about um, Steve compared to Elon. But uh, I mean, he's impressive, complicated. I I don't know. It it was a good read. It's a good read. But like you, I I do feel like I I don't know how much I, I learned from somebody who's been such a high profile focus of uh, attention. It's, it's probably not the greatest analogy, but when all these, you know, documentaries or TV shows came out about the OJ Simpson trial, and I just remember being riveted to the screen when I was in college and following that story. And then it's like, well, I don't really need to read or watch documentaries about something that I followed pretty carefully. And it seems the same thing with him. He's been all over the news that I think a little bit of his stuff about his childhood, his upbringing, his family, that was revelatory, but his actual business career, I think has been pretty well documented. I probably would have waited to to write a biography like that if if I was the author versus now. I mean, I I guess the the businesses that he's in and how he got there from um, thinking about how can I have the biggest impact on civilization and, you know, make humanity multiplanetary, solve the climate crisis and integrate computers and humans. So run three companies being SpaceX, Tesla, and Neuralink that all, you know, go have those missions. It's, it's impressive Um, how he goes about doing it. I wouldn't want to work for him, but it's, he's done a lot. It's interesting. Will you be living on Mars anytime soon? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. Uh, we digress. Um, Bob, thank you for that overview. Uh, and I know that the yield story is something you're going to be watching really carefully. It'll filter its way into our portfolios as needed as your team is looking at uh, you know, future expected returns and what things have changed or, or not changed in the market, tuning out the noise, which I think is one of 
David Booth's uh, principles that you shared with us. So thank you for sharing that perspective and educating our listeners. You're welcome. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.